episode number 15, Edward Codenham. Welcome back to The Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I'm your host, Michael Cruz, and this week, I'm going to try to ad-lib the old intro. I have been reading from the script, and it's a bit stilted, and I'm going to try and, you know, make it a bit more personable. Personable. See? That's why. Uh, a special thanks to Ms. Sue Edworthy, who did a fantastic job on the last episode, uh, Disappearing Act, for doing my voiceover. I had a bit of laryngitis there for several weeks and couldn't uh, speak. <laughs> so my voice is back, which is, um, you know, some people are kind of uh, afraid of, but that's okay. Uh, we've got a new episode coming out to you right now with Edward Kotenin. Uh Edward Kotenin, uh is a set and costume designer who's currently uh, living in uh, Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, he's been around since the early 60s and uh, has a great insight over the start uh, of of uh, theatre in Toronto around that time in Ontario in general. Uh, we had a great discussion, uh, including a discussion about uh, the late uh, Jack King, who was a designer and uh, Ed's uh, former partner um, uh, in the 1980s who died uh, prematurely, certainly, uh, but uh, after whom there is a scholarship um, named at the Associated Designers of Canada. So inquire with them about that. That's something that, as a young designer or as a beginning designer, uh, you want to have access to. Uh, and if you want to help them get charitable status, that would be helpful as well. Uh, I wanted to update in this, um, in this podcast or the conversation I had with Jack King, I make reference to what I think is an apocryphal story uh, concerning uh, designer Michael Levine, who worked at the Met, uh, who still works at the Met, uh, but at the time I heard the story, uh, there was a uh, an opera in which uh, the only set element was a chair, and I attributed this to Michael Levine, and in the ensuing period, I can't find any evidence that I'm right. So I want to apologize in advance if I'm completely wrong, uh, and uh, if you know about this story, if you know details about this story that aren't available online, because I couldn't, I did a little course research and there's no information about the outrage the audience felt uh, in paying a $100 opera ticket to see a chair, uh, along with, I must say, probably a brilliant cast uh, in an opera that I couldn't, couldn't rem remember the name of. So, anyways, if you know this story, please let me know. Uh, I want also to also remind everybody that show notes are available at thetitleblock.com. If you've gotten this off of iTunes, uh, please go there. And uh, there's, a, there's a comment section if you want to yell at me, especially if you're Michael Levine and I have, uh, I have dragged you into something that is inappropriate. Uh, but uh, I'm going to leave that in there and you guys can sort it out in the comment section or uh, shoot me an email at uh, thetitleblock at gmail.com. Um, and another little boost, uh, if you want to give us reviews on iTunes, that'll help uh, people find us uh, and, uh, and give uh, your accounting of how good or poor a job I am doing. Uh, and that's it. So that's the ad lib portion over. Moving on, uh, here's my interview uh, with Ed Kotenin, and I'll see you at the end for my usual spiel. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
Ed Kotnin is a theatrical designer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and has been working for over 50 years designing sets and costumes for theater, opera, and dance. And instead of letting the cat out of the bag, I will let Ed tell his story. Welcome to the title block. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Okay. So tell me where you started. Now, you started in the early 60s, you said? like I started in the early 60s. Uh, yeah, I mean, it really started... Uh, uh, in, in a strange way, in in high school, uh, I was the only son of immigrant parents, uh, the only child of immigrant parents, and of course, were uh, people like that were all expected to go to university and make something of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I really didn't want to be made into a dentist or an engineer, uh, so it kind of worked backwards uh for me i was artsy i'd never actually done plays i i had attended plays and i knew other people who had done plays but i hadn't uh but it still led to a conversation with the the high school um guidance counselor uh about going into show business and uh at that time there were really there was no national theater school and there were what what was going on in canada was kind of in a on a sort of genteel amateur level through english departments and things like that there was there was something getting started in in edmonton at the university of alberta uh but anyway uh, this guy happened to have a personal connection in california so he said, oh, let me see what I can find out. Uh, and uh, sure enough, I ended up at UCLA. Oh, that's terrific. And where, where, did you, where did you come from? Where were you born? Thunder Bay. At Thunder Bay. Yeah. It's a bit of a big step. It was a big step. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea uh, even that there was more than one university in, in Los Angeles. So, of course, when I got there, I ended up at the wrong one. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, it, was, uh, it was a terrific experience. Uh, and it was almost like going to a, a trade school. Right. Uh, there was a great deal of hands-on work. And um, there, was, there was an opera department there. Uh, there was fine art, but that the fine art really didn't come into it. Uh, there, there was something that I sort of had to learn later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly theater production was something that we did a lot of. And uh, everybody pretty much uh, when they, in, in uh, the first year undergrads, first and second year, uh, everybody did everything. Right. And uh, there were general auditions at the beginning of each semester. And if you got cast, you had to play the part. Uh, right. So this was just a general theater program? Specifically. It was a general yeah. theater program. Yeah. And uh, the people who only wanted to do acting uh, took English. Right. So <laughs> they didn't end up uh, having to uh, run wardrobe or something or change plugs in the electric cage. Right. So... Um, uh, but I, I loved it, all of it, uh, and it was it was certainly a great, uh, uh, a good way for me to learn uh, because I learned by doing like, the way a lot of people do, uh, and uh, we had to take uh, because it was uh, a degree in in uh, 
applied arts. Uh, there were uh, required courses in other departments. Um, and uh, most people, you know, we did what we could, but we were busy making shows. So mm-hmm. uh, a C average was considered quite acceptable uh, that way, because yeah. sometimes you would be on tour and miss the term paper sure. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> so anyway, that, that's what happened uh, uh, there. And, and it took four years. I, I never thought uh, that I would... Uh, stay in California. Um, I, I, I didn't really feel very American. Uh, not that I didn't enjoy being there, but, uh, it just didn't feel like, like home. Right. What were the, uh, the, what were the, do you remember any of the instructors you had? Like were the larger sort of figures that imprinted upon you down there? Or? Um, not really. I think the, um, there, there were important figures who uh, had uh, had moved to the states uh, before and during the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of whom ended up in in California, um, and people who wrote textbooks and a man named Melnitz, uh, for instance, uh, whose name might ring a bell with some people. Uh, who wrote a kind of a theater history book along with one of his uh, his uh, uh, colleagues uh, there. There was a man named uh, Ralph. Uh, I always wanted to call him Freud, but he was called Frude. Okay. And, uh, but he must have been part of that family somehow. And uh, he was an important uh, um, person uh, to, uh, to anybody who was an actor mm-hmm. uh, there. The uh, the design people were they weren't anybody that I ever heard of or ever heard of again, mm-hmm. but they they were all very uh, committed uh, and and uh, and very I thought very well uh, informed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they they knew uh, how to uh, how to introduce us to all the things that we needed to do. Uh, there and uh, which was a lot because everything was produced by students and there was uh, there were there was a main stage program in in the big theater uh, and then there was uh, another program in a what was like a converted classroom uh, sort of a three-quarter round space Mm -hmm. and then there were um a, a lot of temporary buildings that were, I think, are finally gone now, but they were temporary for about 50 years. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, uh, one of them, uh, or even two of them, I think, were uh, small theaters that seated maybe 100 people or 75 people. Um, and uh, there were, uh, it was a one-act program that took place there, written and produced by graduate students mm-hmm. but everybody got involved in the actual production of these uh, these plays and uh, so if you weren't working on a main stage show you were most likely working on one of those other ones mm-hmm. so everybody was always busy everybody was always running around with the scripts and uh, uh, all kinds of breakdowns and things uh, uh, so the, it it was a, a a very active place, 
there was a radio television section, and uh, the biggest, of course, was uh, movie production because they were right there. Mm -hmm. So um, altogether, I think there were about 400 students. Wow. At the at the time, and when you speak about going to what you describe as the wrong school, the right school would have been what UC Berkeley was that one the one or was that uh, one? no the, the the wrong school that I that I went to was uh, University of Southern California oh I see uh, USC which is a private school right uh, and that's downtown and UCLA is in a uh, it's not exactly a suburb but it's not, not downtown yeah. Um, and, uh, it was a, it was a very good experience. I had a chance to do summer school and do some, uh, TV stuff, which was, uh, lots of fun. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I came back to Canada right. and, uh, went to, uh, uh, came to Toronto. Uh, at that point, did you know you wanted to be a designer or was it? Well, yeah, I think, yet? uh, uh, as I said, we, we had we spent the first two years uh, everybody doing everything, and after that you could specialize. So it was it was quite possible and expected that you would go to the uh, the director and say, uh, you know, I I really don't want to be in the show, but I you know I would love to do wardrobe mm-hmm. or whatever it is that. Uh, uh, interested you at the, at that time. So, uh, people had a chance to do a lot of, um, the undergraduates didn't do designing, uh, of those big shows, uh, but they certainly did a lot of assisting and, um, and, uh, building and painting and, uh, uh, uh doing a lot of lighting, uh, which was, uh, I mean, it's always, lighting is always, uh, uh, uh intense and, uh, um, uh, labor uh, intense if kind of job but in in those days uh, there was a, a lot of climbing of ladders right and and a ladders with extensions so right, you were right. 30 feet up in the air hanging lights and, right. and focusing and stuff like that mm-hmm. um, and uh, the the equipment was still resistance dimmers oh right uh so, which were great fun to operate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I've been told, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I really don't understand uh, 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 computerized boards at all uh, now, because mm-hmm. uh, I still, my mind still goes back to how those things worked. Sure. Um, and it was amazing how many things they could actually do. Oh yeah. Uh, with uh, with that equipment, but. Um, and and it was a, it was a good experience to be working in a in a really big stage, because uh, this was a you know one of those large auditoriums with two thousand seats mm-hmm. and and all of that. Not that 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 was going to come my way you know the minute I graduated, but uh, I knew that it was possible to work on that scale. Mm-hmm. And so then when I came to uh, came to Toronto. I sort of, I, I seem to manage to find bits of work here and there. I, I went, I did some shows at Hart House, for instance, mm-hmm. and um, uh, I got a job at Malabar's, uh, uh, just helping them out at, at Halloween. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they kept me on. And then eventually I met people there who one thing led to another and that led to more work. So. Right. 
Um, it, and it's, it seems to me that always it's been a case of who you know. Right. What year was this when you returned to Toronto? That would have been 62 or 3. Okay. Yeah. And besides Hart House, who was producing theater at the time that you recall? Well, there were there were some independent kind of uh, producers around. Uh, there were coffee houses. This was all in the days of of uh, uh, that kind of culture, mm -hmm. the sort of beatnik culture of the fifties was was it was transitioning into into the uh, hippie era, but not quite. Um, so those places, uh, there was. There was the first floor club, for instance. Uh, uh, there was a the Pilot Tavern used to be uh, on the other side of Young Street. Oh, uh, and uh, in that same building uh, downstairs, around the back, on the street called Asquith, there was a, a coffee house. One of those places where there, it's all painted black. And, right. Uh, uh, and uh, it became a theater from from time to time, and uh, I don't know who paid for it, uh, but uh, somehow somebody would collect the money, and uh, there would be a, a play produced. And I know I did the lighting for. Uh, uh, it was a nineteen twenties expressionist drama called <laughs> Machinal. Right. Uh, <laughs> that had uh, Gordon Pinsent. Oh, really? Uh, and, uh, uh, and 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 oh dear, I don't remember her name. Uh, wonderful actress. She was only nineteen at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was designed by uh, a man uh, from the CBC who himself was Central European. So all this expressionist stuff really uh, rang a bell with him. Yeah, it was written in his wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> I think he actually was a he was a painter at the CBC, mm -hmm. um, and uh, he liked to have the opportunity to do some designing every now and then. And uh, it was a good show, mm -hmm. uh, and and it had a lot of a great deal of sound, as I recall, mm -hmm. millions of cues, wow. uh, and uh, people seemed to appreciate it. Uh, there were there there were shows at the Crest Theater, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, that was the sort of the main kind of professional stage there that was a continuing operation. Mm -hmm. So I had a chance to work there, uh, but it was kind of it was gearing down then. I think I I worked there in a kind of its last two seasons, right. So uh, it was freezing cold in the shop. Right. <laughs> that seems to be a theme as well. <laughs> yes. On the title block, everyone tells us about how nobody <laughs> heated any space except for the theater. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Days. Yeah. Um, and and there, uh, the, the opera was, uh, uh, company was getting going um, more and more. They were touring uh, as well as doing a season in Toronto. So the... Uh, I, I worked on several opera tours. I didn't go on any tours, but, mm -hmm. uh, and they, I think they must have had a wonderful time uh, taking these operas because they went from Texas to Alaska. Oh, right. And, and all the way across Canada. Wow. Um, uh, doing 
whatever, Mozart, La Boheme, all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. I Um, guess this is in a time where the regional theaters really hadn't been established. So there was a kind of a a need. There was a need. To do that. that There was a need. And certainly there was no, uh, there was very little opera outside of uh, uh, bigger bigger centers mm-hmm. and which is true now too of course but uh, yeah um yeah no i think they they had a they must have had a, a great time in spite of, i mean of course it was exhausting sure. uh, but uh, uh somehow they well they were all young and energetic and they they could do that yes <laughs> and true. canadian players was another group that uh toured uh uh and and uh, in a similar way uh, all over North America, mm-hmm. uh, doing, uh, they often did Shakespeare mm-hmm. yeah. and, uh, Stratford had started. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was another source of employment, but you had to go to Stratford and live there. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, it wasn't uh, that there was a, a real dearth of work. There was, there was stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, well, then, and, and we were we were kind of uh, there was a, a mishmash of people who had various kinds of training, you right. know, or no training or whatever. But yeah. uh, we all kind of worked together and and managed to get these shows on. When, and were this was the staff um, mostly Canadian? I know that in Stratford, the sort of tradition was to bring classical actors and directors and mm-hmm. artists over from the yeah. UK, but. Were the, was were these projects mostly Canadian? I imagine the opera was a bit of a mishmash as well. The, the opera was a was quite a mishmash, but uh, it was uh, the opera was quite Canadian actually. Mm-hmm. Um, the ballet was uh, uh, it, it was uh, run by Brits basically because mm-hmm. uh, that's that's how it started with right. Celia Franca and and. Uh, people that she knew came over to uh, uh, work uh, for her mm-hmm. and, and with her to help her get it, uh, get it going. And uh, she did really quite a remarkable job. But she had a lot of uh, Canadian dancers. Right. And not Canadian designers uh, very often. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, there were, again, with the, with the, the ballet, there, it's sort of the show comes as a package. So if you're, if you're doing an Anthony Tudor piece, you 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 use the original design, right? Because it works with the choreography. So right. um, it was uh, there. It's mostly a question of reproducing and trying to be faithful to the <clears throat> the original design, which of course most of the people in Toronto had never seen. Right, so, of course. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and that people working on it had never seen it, so they just had to kind of uh, hope that they were heading in the right direction. Yeah, um, but uh, there were there was a chance to do uh, uh, mostly smaller works uh, and often uh, offbeat works. Uh, Canadian authors, or were you doing international? I mean, that German expressionist piece is kind of yeah. I think there were there were a lot of. Uh, there were a lot of international uh, kinds of uh, efforts uh, doing absurdist uh, plays, for instance, mm-hmm. UNESCO, mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of thing. Because uh, a, a lot of this, I think, was uh, sort of uh, driven somehow uh, 
from uh, academic sources. Oh. There, there were there uh, there were people who were treating theater as literature, you know, at at university, mm-hmm. and then they they were interested in seeing how you know what is a UNESCO play really like mm-hmm. it's interesting on the page but does it work and mm-hmm. you actually produce it and so then somebody decides to try at the at the the bohemian embassy or somewhere like that right and uh, so then you get to make some masks and yeah. <laughs> you know whatever and right. uh, uh and and you find out uh, uh yourself uh, uh how it works you know yeah uh so there was a lot of um kind of falling into these various kinds of situations. Uh, uh, so it, it didn't feel like I was pursuing a career. I was just sort of, you know, taking, getting jobs. Right. And, and uh, paying the bills and, yeah. you know, all that. Was there anybody that once you moved to Toronto, you uh, sort of glommed onto as a mentor or uh, did they, I mean, well, would people even yeah. exist? Uh, there, there were people... Um, uh, like for instance, I, w- I went to uh, I did a season of summer stock in Leamington. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, the theater was called the Sun Parlor Playhouse, mm-hmm. and uh, Ernie Schwartz was uh, the the director there, uh, and uh, uh, he went on to uh, do a lot of work uh, in Toronto. He was an American mm-hmm. who uh, came to Toronto and just kind of stayed. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, he had the what was called the Factory Lab Theater oh, right. down on on Queen Street. I think I think it was in an old. Uh, there might have there might have been a legion there or something. Mm-hmm. It was it was just not far, just past Church Street. I think mm-hmm. going east. Yeah, uh, and um, and he also worked at Ryerson. Right. So uh, uh, there was a, a, another kind of theater department, another program uh, getting going mm-hmm. uh, there. And, then, and it was a place to go to do some work. Right. Uh, so I did, I did some shows there uh, with him. And uh, he was one of those very well-trained people who had gone to Yale. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he knew how to do everything. Right. Uh, and excuse me, including uh, writing and directing mm-hmm. and, and directing is really what he wanted to do. Yeah. So um, but he was very uh, he was easy to work with because uh, he had a good sort of visual imagination. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I could trust him to understand what it was that I was trying to do. You yeah. Know? So. Were you taught this? I mean, I imagine the answer to this is yes. But when you were down at UCLA, uh, the communication of your ideas, being the paperwork, the drafting, everything else, was that pretty solid in your mind when you came to Toronto? Or did you have to adapt it to local um, expectations? No, I think it was it was pretty solid, yeah. Um, I don't think that I encountered anything that... Uh, uh, for instance, in terms of drafting, I, d- I don't think I was making marks on a page that a carpenter didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I think there were some things that I was doing that were more common for architects to do or something like that. Okay. But uh, 
it was a, a, a pretty much everybody seemed to speak the same language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, terrific. And and now this uh, brings us into the sort of late sixties, early seventies. I think at this point, yeah, yeah. The in now my knowledge of uh, the Canada Council is is a bit sparse, so yeah. I have to sort of correct me. But my understanding uh, in 1967 and around that sort of uh, uh, centenary, there was this sort of explosion of funding that came for Canadian. There theater. was, yeah. There was a, suddenly there was a lot of money. Um, and uh, I don't know how much of it came through the Canada Council. There, there, there were other areas too, I think, that sort of cultural, I don't know, whatnots, uh, that... Uh, well, there was a lot of building going on, mm-hmm. uh, like the 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 uh, uh, what's now well the St. Lawrence Center was built uh, around that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the uh, O'Keefe was ten years earlier, I guess. Uh, well, actually, no, I think it opened in '62. The mm-hmm. O'Keefe Center, um, but there were, that's when all those Jubilee Auditorium and all all those kinds of buildings went up. Yeah, um, and and uh, companies were getting established, like MTC mm-hmm. uh, and Citadel and those kinds of places. Right. That's, right. So, That's the Manitoba Manitoba Theater Center. Manitoba yeah. Theater yeah. Center. Yeah. 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 So that that uh, uh, um, Charlottetown uh, got started uh, basically with Anna Green Gables. That mm-hmm. was about sixty four, I think. Mm-hmm. So there was a huge explosion. Uh, the country was prosperous, and and there was available money, mm-hmm. and uh, and quite a bit of it went into uh, into the arts, mm-hmm. and there was still a lot of uh, uh, very uh, um, important um, amateur theater going on. Right, like uh, Hart House is was an example of that, but there were many of them, mm-hmm. and one place where I worked a lot uh, was in London at the London Little Theater. Oh, right. Uh, which was the it's the the Grand Theater, which is the sister theater to the the uh, Royal Alec. Mm-hmm. It was uh, and and people uh, claimed that the uh, the ghost of Ambrose Small, oh, right. uh, who who built those theaters, that it uh, the ghost actually inhabited the Grand. Yeah, and uh, it was a lovely old place uh, with. Uh, uh, bits of old scenery that were left behind by touring companies. And uh, so uh, we were actually able to use some of it. Oh, terrific. Even. Uh, there, was a, there was a very good uh, kind of a, a bay window uh, unit with, with working sash windows and everything that was uh, very solidly built. And it was just kept and probably got used every season at least right, one sure <laughs> why not right yeah so uh was, it was uh, it was a good spot to work because they did uh, they owned the theater mm-hmm. uh and it had a union crew because it was a it had been a movie theater oh right and uh so iatsi uh had jurisdiction there so there were people you didn't have to rely entirely on on volunteers right uh, to actually get the show constructed and mm-hmm. built on stage. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and it was the kind of theater that I was used to working in because it was old. Right, so sure. Had, and uh, uh, 
and they did uh, they did an eight play season they had 10,000 subscribers and wow. all of that so it was a very active successful uh operation uh was there a lot of crossover it seems like today um i mean while a lot of people come up through the amateur theater uh sort of stream into professional theater there doesn't seem to be a lot of crossover between professionals working in the business today and amateur theater today was there a lot of crossover mm-hmm. back then i mean you were they had hired you right there was yeah um yeah, they 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 certainly wouldn't have been able to manage to do a season like that without hiring. Uh, uh, it wasn't that that they hired one designer to do the whole season. Mm-hmm. It was uh, usually three or four, mm-hmm. uh, and um, they uh, the 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 members of the London Little Theatre uh, couldn't have coped with designing and building and painting and everything right um as it is uh they did an awful lot of it themselves and uh really very well i was i was amazed Mm -hmm. um so they they, but they had a long tradition behind them uh and and i think uh now there's there's and and there didn't seem to be a sense of uh um I don't know resentment that somebody's being paid to do what they're they're doing for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I found uh, later through uh, Theatre Ontario there was there was they had various programs of uh, hiring uh, hiring professionals to go to uh, uh, provide some instruction or whatever in uh, to uh, at an amateur company. And I found that uh, if if I was uh, coming in to help them with a specific show, uh, they thought that they had that I was the hired help, and so then they then they didn't have to come in. Oh, right. <laughs> so <laughs> it didn't really work very well uh, uh, then. Uh, so it's I, I think uh, it's it's a, again a different world somehow. Well, the, the, I think the the difference is that they do it for fun, yeah, and uh, and professionals don't. I mean, they hope to have fun, but that's not why they're doing it. Yeah, I had an interesting <laughs> experience. I was when I was transitioning out of the business in two thousand and four. I was working out in uh, Regina at uh, the Globe, and I had just done a high school production for my old high school uh-huh. friends of mine who do a lot of large productions, and I had lit it. And it was interesting, the uh, working as a professional, it was interesting to contrast the commitment I had to the show. Not that I wasn't committed to working at the Globe. Obviously, it's a professional contract. You want to be a professional. And I certainly was, you know, working uh, towards that goal. But the stakes seemed so much higher at the amateur level because uh-huh. people's egos were at stake. And there's a big, there's a giant production. There's a lot of money. People are going to come see you on the stage. And so there seemed to be an energy there that was exciting and thrilling that didn't exist on the professional stage. It was Absolutely. a very curious Absolutely. sensation. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, uh, uh, you can see it, uh, uh, especially when at dress rehearsal on opening night, uh, when it's a, a bit of a kind of bedlam backstage right. uh, in the, in a, at an amateur production. Uh, 
uh, and uh, it's very quiet mm-hmm. backstage in a professional theater. Yeah, like especially in the during when the when the stage manager calls the half. Right. It all just a hush falls over everybody. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and the and they all just kind of focus on what they're going to do, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, at what point? Now, when you came back from UCLA to Toronto, you, I imagine you were doing a whole bunch of different type of jobs. Mm-hmm. When did you start to sort of streamline into only doing design and and able to make a career out of it? Well. Um, Part of it, I think, was uh, the amount of work that I did in London. Uh, is it, it eventually moved, meant moving to London mm. uh, to make it uh, easier. And, and uh, I was living there with my partner, who was also a designer, uh, Jack King. Right. Uh, and uh, so uh, we did these shows uh, together. And so we did, in fact, do most of a season, most of two seasons, I think, so I don't know how many shows, uh, but uh, the wonderful thing about London was that there was an opportunity to do Mother Courage mm-hmm. or the Marat Saad, uh, those kinds of shows that professional companies uh, mostly can't afford to do. Right. They, they can't afford the cast. It's a giant cast, yeah. Yeah, and, <clears throat> and uh, these people rehearsed uh, Marat Saad like, the whole fall, like they, they actually, I think, opened in January. Right. But they started rehearsing in September. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, and and they well they they were so well set up that they could actually find a spot to because there were three other shows opening and closing during that time. They were still able to work on on that other one. Hmm. Um, and they needed the time to do it uh, as well because uh, uh, it was so big, and they could they could then break it up into smaller chunks, and uh, so everybody didn't have to attend every rehearsal. So right. it worked out. It was a job for the stage manager, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. but uh, it, it was uh, it was a very good uh, uh, opportunity to do show after show after show, right? Um, and uh, that's uh, it just kind of led to more work because mm-hmm. there were uh, directors who came from outside they they, they weren't all uh, members of the London little theater mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so through them it's possible to you know make another connection somewhere else and uh, so it it did lead to uh, I, I found that I never got any work if I applied for it Right. <laughs> it seemed it seemed that uh, it was it was always a question of uh, kind of uh, it it sort of casually came along. Uh, I think one time I actually applied for a job, and I got the job. Right. But uh, usually uh, people got work because of their previous association mm-hmm. with somebody or other. Yeah. Um, and and it makes sense that the director designer combinations were formed because mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> then they uh, they learned to work together. Yeah, and were there specific directors that you started to sort of uh, work a lot with? Yeah, um, there was Walter Learning in in uh, New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was. Uh, 
Tibor, Tibor Fehergehazi, who right. was, uh, he finally got his own theater at, at Persephone in, mm-hmm. in uh, Saskatoon. And uh, so he was fun. I always liked working with him. And yeah. uh, he was uh, very enthusiastic and, uh, and very thorough mm-hmm. and took a lot of chances, which was uh, great. Right. Yeah. Was he, again, was he uh, an expat or was he a Canadian director? Uh, he, was, he was an expat. Uh, he, was, he was one of those Hungarians who left in the, uh, when, when there was the, uh, the uprising oh, right. against the Soviets in mm-hmm. the 50s. And uh, he came to Canada and uh, spent a long time. He, went, he, he spent a long time at Winnipeg uh, uh, as a stage manager. And uh, and then uh, worked his way into into directing. I think the first theater that he actually uh, was able to uh, call his own was uh, Magnus in in uh, mm-hmm. Thunder Bay. Mm-hmm. And and in fact, uh, I saw one of his shows there. I didn't do it, uh, which was Hosanna. Oh yeah. Uh, and this was like not long after. Uh, it had been translated and was being performed in in uh, uh, other other stages and uh, outside of Quebec. I mean, and yeah. uh, um, the uh, people were worried uh, that you know the audience was going to be uh, offended by having this on the stage. It's quite a play to bring to Thunder Bay, I yeah. imagine. Uh, and uh, no, it was a big hit. Everybody loved it. Yeah, <laughs> so, terrific. So uh, uh, he. Uh, uh, he managed to cast it with just the right sort of sympathetic people. Mm-hmm. So it didn't become a freak show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's terrific. Um, terrific. Now, you mentioned Jack King. I had forgotten that you guys were connected. And I oh. and I don't know much about him. I know that there's a scholarship at the ADC. That's right. Is that right? Can you tell me a bit about him? Mm-hmm. He's one of those people who... Uh, 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 came from the amateur ranks. Um, he was a bit of an extraordinary uh, type because he was uh, he was from Chatham mm. uh, in Ontario, and uh, uh, the Chatham Little Theatre was where he spent a lot of time when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, by the time he was uh, sixteen, I think you know he he was uh, very busy. Uh, working there mm-hmm. and uh, then he became uh, he became a school teacher he went to uh, in those days there were still normal schools right and you could go to normal school for a year I think after you graduated high school and he could become a school teacher mm-hmm. uh, and then he found himself uh, actually teaching in a one-room school it seems so old-fashioned yes. now yeah a one-room school out in the country outside Chatham uh, where there were like eight grades of kids right uh, so then he was back in the in the the uh, theater again and uh, uh, then from there I know he came to Toronto he'd never had any formal training um, but I think it it was just in his blood right and uh, I met him in uh, at Summer Stock right. uh, in Leamington. Uh, and uh, 
So, which of course is a perfect place to have a romance in, <laughs> yes, in summer stock. Of course, because it's happened to all of us. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> has. Of time. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and and uh, uh, we moved around quite a lot working in in uh, uh, in Toronto and in Stratford. Uh, he uh, he went to uh, he became uh, assistant to uh, Leslie Hurry at Stratford. Okay. Uh, who was a, a, a really quite an extraordinary artist, uh, um, and and did beautiful work. Uh, I think he influenced a, just just simply by watching what he did. By if, even if you weren't backstage, just going to see one of his plays uh, would have a, a great effect on any designer. Mm. Uh, and because uh, he he approached it like an artist, there was no. There were no technicalities considered right. at all. It was just this is how I want it to look. Yeah. How we're going to get there? Right. And um, did that kind of uh, not to digress too much, but did that kind of that seems about an easy way to alienate the actor from the scene? Did he integrate? Oh yeah, the no, there was well? no, there was no. Uh, uh, I don't think there was ever ever any problem with that. I don't know how he. Uh, what he did when when he was in conference with the directors that mm-hmm. he worked with, but he, he did a lot of theater work. I mean, he started off as a as a an artist, a, a fine artist, uh, uh, and I think his his first actual uh, big job, maybe his first job, uh, was to do a, a design for a ballet production of uh, Hamlet. Mm. Uh, with the Royal Ballet and Covent Garden and mm-hmm. all that stuff. So uh, uh, he drew a picture and that turned into the design. Right. Uh, so somehow, I mean, he must have, he, uh, if, he didn't, if he didn't have a feeling for the theater, he never would have done it, you yeah. know. So somehow he knew how to, how to make it into actual working design. Yeah. Um, and the and the costumes and the set uh, were all part of the same picture, right. as were uh, and in the ballet it it is a bit like that. Uh, the like the the corps de ballet is kind of like a puppet show, right? You right. know, that's right. Uh, uh, compared to compared to performing in a play, but he uh, he su- quite successfully did plays. Uh, and the the actors didn't feel like puppets at all. Right. So, um, and uh, Jack uh, seemed to get on to his wavelength really easily, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, was able to uh, uh, think the way he thinks uh, or thought. Uh, and uh, so uh, they they did quite a lot of shows together mm-hmm. uh, over that time. And uh, so then, uh, and he also. Um, I can't remember how it happened uh, now, uh, but he uh, he did some ballets uh, at uh, for for the national, mm-hmm. um, including uh, uh, Mad Shadows, which is uh, um, it's a it's a short novel by uh, Marie Claire Blay, uh, and. Uh, Anne Ditchburn, who was a, a dancer turning choreographer, uh, 
wanted to do this as a full stage production, and uh, and they did very successfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he also did uh, had a Gabler uh, ballet with James Kadelka. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and I worked together at the opera school at uh, that the Faculty of Music in Toronto and various places. So he had he had quite a uh, extensive career, Rainbow mm-hmm. Stage of Winnipeg, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, so uh, and he's quite fondly remembered by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So which is why his name is on uh, on the scholarship. Yeah. Then uh, when was that established? The scholarship. Uh, well, uh, by 1990, mm-hmm. he died in 87, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, before the decade was over, I think it was, uh, it was established, uh, uh, Reg Bronskill mm-hmm. was instrumental in getting it going. Yeah. At the time. Terrific. Yeah, that's great. So, and with a bit of luck, uh, we we might actually get charitable status, right? And and <laughs> then then uh, people can donate to it and and get a get a a, a charitable uh, discount. What's that called? A receipt. A receipt. receipt. Yeah, 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 a discount. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, that's terrific. So let's just, just take this back again. So you uh, have established yourself as a designer. You're getting all this other work. You're trying to work with these other directors across Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, when was the first time you started doing opera? Oh. How did you get that opportunity? Uh, well, I was still in London at the time. And um, I, I had worked, uh, I think it was like costume decoration and props for the, for the COC. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had some uh, connections with with the opera company that way, and I had actually like been in the theater when the opera was being performed. So, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, then in London there was a man uh, who had what was called the London School of Church Music, okay, uh, uh, the Aeolian Hall, which was a beautiful little. Um, it was a it was a church auditorium, a church building uh, that had a domed ceiling with stars painted on it, mm-hmm. and uh, and a huge pipe organ. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the whole stage was this were these organ pipes, uh, and uh, um, he wanted to do uh, Mozart. He wanted to do uh, the Marriage of Figaro. Right. Uh, so I got to do the marriage of Figaro. Uh, there wasn't much set uh, because it was organ pipes, but right, uh, right. <laughs> there there were costumes which I which I uh, rented uh, from from Malabar's mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and props that had to be collected and that kind of thing. And then he wanted to then he did which was successful. Then he did a, another Mozart opera, the abduction from the Seraglio, which mm-hmm. uh, again. Uh, happened pretty much the same way. Um, and then I ended up in uh, Hamilton, but I can't remember exactly why. Oh, I know. My friend Elsie was designing uh, a show for the for what became uh, Opera Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Uh, the opera here at this started as... Uh, uh, 
there's a big Italian population and they have Fest Italia. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they brought over a whole opera company oh, wow. uh, to, to do, uh, I don't know what it was. Uh, they did a couple of those and then they decided they should produce their own. Uh, and so Elsie got a chance to do uh, a couple of them, and I came to help her. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, that sort of got me connected with Hamilton uh, uh, to some degree. And, uh, and eventually I ended up uh, working here for, for Opera Hamilton, uh, coordinating the costumes, and then doing whatever else... Uh, uh, needed doing because mm -hmm. there was I was the only person who was called a designer right. here at the time and uh, and I also worked uh, for quite a, uh, a number of uh, times at the opera school in Toronto at the Faculty of Music mm -hmm. and uh, that was fun uh, and and also Toronto Operetta Theatre mm -hmm. I did a whole bunch of shows for them uh, are they still around? They're not still around for all. Yeah, they thing. are. Uh, they they just did uh, they just did a Mikado actually oh, okay. uh, at uh, at Christmas. Right. So uh, I did a bunch of their, their shows. So uh, one way or another, there was quite a lot of operatic activity for a while. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's terrific. Were there any shows that uh, that you can recall that sort of signify your your style or your uh, uh -huh. your approach to theater that you can recall? Well, I I always seem to be good at doing things that were rustic. Right. Uh, I don't really know uh, why. Well, I grew up running around in the bush in, in northern Ontario, mm -hmm. so maybe there's a influence there. Yeah. Uh, um, one of my most successful shows... Uh, was uh, um, Fiddler on the Roof, uh, which I did. Well, I think I did. I did it about three times. Right. Yeah. the The best one was was in the, at Rainbow Stage, mm -hmm. and um, uh, it's a sort of a, it can be a quite a big sort of sprawling show. And yeah. Rainbow Stage is big and sprawling, so uh, uh, it worked out. Uh, Visually, I thought it worked out really well. It was a good show. Mm -hmm. uh, you can hardly do it wrong, actually. Right. Yes, it's <laughs> anyway, very well structured. It's, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and other shows that sort of take place in, in farms and uh, uh, fishing shacks and all that kind of thing, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I seem to uh, pretty easily... Uh, um, make it make it work and make, make it uh, appealing uh, somehow and comfortable for the actors. Mm -hmm. And I think it's probably because uh, because it it feels tangible. It feels like it's handmade and mm -hmm. uh, and it's warm. Uh, there's something about that. Uh, I remember uh, somebody years ago asking me well, why did I why did I paint the set brown? And I said, I don't know, because I felt like it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, when I thought about it, I realized, of course, I wanted it brown because because it was so uh, it was so uh, warm and inviting and 
natural looking, mm-hmm. you know. So um, I think I, I usually want to, I, I try to make it look like the actors actually live there, mm-hmm. you know, that it's somehow they belong in that, in that environment. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's harder if, if it's some kind of an alienating material, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but it depends on the show, yeah, uh, completely. So uh, usually, the shows that take place in fishing shacks and farms are kind of there's something ca- kind of uh, uh, cozy and warm about them. Yeah, you that's know? true. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get your surreal fishing shack play. <laughs> Not very, very often. often. <laughs> no, no, exactly. That's right. <laughs> that's great. Uh, okay, so we were talking about, let's just talk about the Rainbow Stage for just for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, uh, you were telling me earlier about a story about the the sort of crisis oh, the Rainbow the Stage was in. Yes. Um, because I had thought that it wasn't around anymore. You're saying they produce, they're still producing. Oh, they are. Yeah, day. yeah. Uh, they, they did produce big shows uh, and, and quite... Successfully, like it's it was a it was a huge auditorium. It must have seated something like, well, it was well over two thousand people. Oh my goodness! Uh, uh, in the in the in the park, Kildonan Park in in Hamilton mm-hmm. or in, in Winnipeg, <laughs> rather, uh, right by the Red River, mm-hmm. and uh, everything tasted of off all the time right. because because <laughs> it was an outdoor theater and uh, and uh, the shows. Uh, I often seem to be doing the show that opened in early July, so uh, that was mosquito season, right. and uh, uh, and it was also a problem for lighting because it's an outdoor theater. Yeah. So uh, there was no point in in uh, planning any kind of scrim effects until the second act. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <It's> dark. <laughs> yes, it, yeah. it, it never got dark enough. So. Uh, um, uh, Jack Shapiro was the man who uh, uh, who who uh, got it started to begin with, uh, and uh, very successfully. Um, but he, I think he had a lot of uh, he had personal problems of of various kinds, uh, and and I think uh, something there's some some kind of a problem with confidence. I I guess uh, because he. Uh, Eventually, uh, was found uh, to have um, embezzled quite a lot of money from the company, like two or three hundred thousand oh dollars. Uh, what year was this? When, around this would be in the eighties. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when in the eighties, but it was in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say kind of eighty. Five eighty six in that area, yeah. and uh, uh, and he ended up uh, in prison. He he ended up at Stony Mountain Penitentiary for what? with a, uh, a shortish kind of uh, sentence, but nevertheless in penitentiary mm-hmm. uh, and huge scandal and all that. And uh, the company uh, had to try to get re reestablished somehow, and. While he was in prison, he met another prisoner and uh, uh, apparently, allegedly, uh, 
tried to convince this other prisoner that when he got out, uh, he would uh, uh, hire him to uh, do damage to the, to the production manager who had ratted on him uh, to begin with. Right. And uh, uh, so then there was another reason for him to stay in jail because this, of course, got out. Uh, anyway, he did finally uh, did get out. And, uh, and interestingly, uh, the board hired him back again to uh, uh, produce another version of uh, Fiddler on the Roof, oh, wow. uh, which we had done exactly 10 years earlier. So as I was saying, we were all brought back from the dead to, right. <laughs> to do this show again. Right. Uh, many of the same cast members... Uh, and me uh, and uh, uh, Ted Coral, that's the name of the, the uh, costume designer mm. I was mentioning earlier in Winnipeg. Oh, great, yeah, yeah. K O R O L. Uh, uh, so we were all there, and uh, it, it, was, it was a good show, but it wasn't as good, of course, as it was 10 years earlier. Yeah, of, course, of course. It was different. There was 10% less embezzlement. <laughs> Much less embezzlement. <laughs> yes, right. exactly. So, but the, the, the company did survive all this, and uh, they're, they're now doing, I think, one show a year instead of two. Yeah. And tell me about the changes to the stage. You say it was originally a mm-hmm. band shell, kind of. It grew out of uh, a big band <clears throat> shell. Uh, and uh, uh, so, the at, at originally the seats were all on a flat floor, mm-hmm. uh, and there was uh, this platform and the band shell, and uh, so of course, whenever there's a stage, people want to do more than just do a concert. So, it started. It grew into a theater, mm-hmm. and they 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 built walls around it and then eventually and this is i think what what uh, uh jack was uh, credited for is to actually build it into a permanent structure mm-hmm. so now there were there were tiered seats it was all a sort of a, a cement huge cement platform mm-hmm. and uh, uh the rainbow uh it was actually a big curved wooden arch Mm. That was originally part of the band shell, right? And it still uh, was there. Uh, and we always had to uh, design a huge kind of. It was like doing a book cover, a, a big false cross. Oh, right. Because uh, otherwise, you could just see through to the wings, right? Uh, and uh, so that became an, a huge, a big integral part of the every show mm-hmm. and and it was important because uh, you could you could you were really aware of it during the first act right yeah. when it was so bright so then uh they they got a lot more money uh from somewhere and uh and they rebuilt the stage completely so now it's it has fly lines mm-hmm. and uh a, a, a pretty tall tower uh and uh the stage is still very wide and deep and high. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a lot of room there to uh, to do a big show. And how did you solve the problem of a lack of a fly tower before? Like, what were the kind of solutions you guys came up with with these well, large musicals? Um, there, a lot of these shows mm-hmm. were wing and drop kinds of shows. Mm-hmm. They were they're they're designed to be performed that way. Mm-hmm. So uh, you still have to have a, 
a four-stage set while you're changing something behind the drop. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they usually there was a show curtain yeah. that was part of the show, but it was further upstage. Uh, and uh, so there were play, there were acts that took place in front of that, mm. uh, and and it often was a divided curtain uh, that uh, tracked off to each side. Mm. Sometimes the curtain just tracked in from one side all the way across. Sometimes there were big roller drops. Um, they they were tricky to operate. Yeah, well, it's a, you said it was like a sixty foot. Well, yeah, it's very, very wide. Yeah. So uh, uh, you, uh, I know I did one of those for uh, Hello Dolly, and it it worked. Uh, but uh, uh, we all had to keep our fingers crossed that it was going to continue to work. <laughs> yes, you know? yeah, because there's no center support. Right, it's just you're just rolling well, from the outside. Uh, well, we, we had to. I had to design it so that it would have. Uh, uh, a rope in the middle. Right. There was a loop of cord that held up the middle. Otherwise, it would have sagged. Yeah, and and not it would have got snarled. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, there there were there were various uh, uh, solutions like that for uh, for fiddler. Uh, I designed hard pieces of scenery that tracked on. Mm-hmm. So. And they came on sort of further and further and further, all from the same side, so that there was a kind of a diagonal uh, alley that led upstage right, for yeah. instance. Um, and uh, so uh, those kinds of things uh, uh, were kind of unique to that theater, because mm-hmm. usually you don't have to, and so then you don't right. <laughs> design yeah. the, those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they seem to work very well, and... and uh, Almost every show has some kind of a big house in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that always had to be hidden, like up center. There needed to be some kind of a curtain that would open and allow the house to come down. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it, 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 you ended up with a kind of a scheme that worked for that theater. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, uh, and I'm, I'm assuming that that's still what they do, except now uh, they can fly in the scenery yeah the the trick is though that that uh, it is open air and there you can get quite a big draft right <laughs> you know, so. yeah and the 60 by 30 foot drop is a bit of a big sale to put <laughs> that's up there, right yeah yeah that's a challenge <laughs> God. okay well let's talk about your process a little bit so uh you are hired you get the script where do you start how do you get inside the mm. the story and Start well, thinking about it. I I read the script, uh, and uh, about uh, uh, three times uh, or so. It's about that. Um, and I, at first, I when I first read it, I don't take any notes or anything. I just read it, mm-hmm. and and then I then I start to. Uh, pay attention to the the locale and the, you know who the characters are and why they're there mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, around that time is uh, uh, when when there should be the first meeting with the director yeah it doesn't always work that way though because the director's process uh, uh, timeline is really different from from the designers, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, often designers need to have their uh, 
specific information way earlier. And sometimes it's like too early, but it still it has to get into the into the process of being manufactured. So mm. uh, uh, it's a little bit tricky uh, insisting that, you know, today I have to know what I'm doing because otherwise it's going to be too late. Right. And nobody else cares. Right. <laughs> you know, it's all on you. So, so somehow you have to convince people that uh, uh, what, what you've worked uh, out so far is really a good idea mm-hmm. and that this is how we're going to do the show. Right. Um, and... Uh, I don't find that that uh, the the directors uh, that I've worked with object to that. They they understand the process mm-hmm. uh, pretty well. Um, the hardest, I think, uh, are are uh, actors turned directors who um, an actor's process often starts at day one in the rehearsal hall, mm-hmm. and uh, so they are unused to doing that kind of preparation Mm -hmm. uh, so early, you know, unless it's some technicality like a a accent or something like that. Mm -hmm. They, uh, they don't really need to. Uh, So uh, they usually uh, those people need a little bit more convincing, but with a a little bit of experience, they, they understand again, the, the process of, working and how it goes mm-hmm. so um uh, the, 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 after i've uh we've had this first meeting uh which is usually uh doesn't involve any pictures it's just talking mm-hmm. about it and taking notes and that kind of thing uh then uh, then i go away and i start doing s- sketching mm-hmm. so I find the best thing to do is to have a, a sketchbook mm-hmm. that has actual pages that you can turn. Uh, and so then there's a sort of usually uh, it's possible when you go back to have another meeting, it's possible to show uh, the director the process because it evolves page after page. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can they can follow it even if they don't have strong visual imaginations. Uh, and, and you know, some of them are—they're really concerned with the word and the idea, and the the, uh, the physical image is not as as prominent in their heads. So. Mm-hmm. And of course, the word and the idea is what it's all about. So <laughs> we have, we had we have all have to support that. Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, there there comes a point where uh, I feel that uh, I'm, I'm comfortable to uh, build a model. Um, do you find a lot of people or some people I've spoken to so far like to start from the model because it is a three-dimensional object? Yeah. Does it ever, does it ever happen to you or do you always start from, or most of the time start with sketching in the 2D? Uh, hmm. I don't know. I think if, if we were, if we were purely visual artists, there would be some designers who are sculptors and some who are painters. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that follows through to the, to the the finished uh, scenery, anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, costumes too, I think, uh, kind of work that way. Uh, uh, and and uh, so it depends on the show, but I find that I'm I'm probably better off sketching mm-hmm. first. 
And does the director ever see those sketches, or do you? What oh, do you yeah. choose to? Re- what do you choose to reveal? Uh, yeah, they, well, I can I can reveal all of the process really uh, to uh, to the director, and uh, uh, unless there's something there that that uh, is going off in left field and that it's 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 just a distraction, mm-hmm. uh, then I wouldn't. Uh, but otherwise, it's 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 good to show the process sometimes. The director says, "So, what was wrong with what you showed me two pages back? I like that one, <laughs> right. you know." Right, and uh, uh, and then uh, you know, so I can revisit that that idea and mm. say, "Well, you know, maybe you're right. I I shouldn't have I shouldn't have discarded that idea so quickly." Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that that allows the director to be part of the process right. uh, then, and. Uh, because they're not usually actually there with a with a pencil or a brush, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so then uh, building some kind of a rough model, like a really rough model with with uh, bits of tape and bits of paper or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, is usually the next step, um, and uh, building the final model. Uh, really kind of is in step with doing the drawings because mm. uh, I don't really want to build some complicated staircase and then change it. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. so. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. 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 So uh, that uh, by the time you get to that point, uh, the, the, the design is pretty well set. Mm-hmm. Um, with costumes, it's a little bit, uh, uh, they're they're more fluid uh, usually because you can't really finish it until you actually have the actor mm-hmm. in the dressing room uh, trying it on yeah. and and uh, then you work out uh, the final details because uh, you can't uh, you can't anticipate unless you know that person very well uh, you you can't anticipate how. Uh, Things are going to change when you know you find that one shoulder is an inch lower than the other, mm-hmm. whatever it might be that yeah. makes you uh, uh, make a shift. But how much um, input do you take from actors as far as what they should look like? Oh well, I I try to um, involve them. Uh, the The problem again is it depends on the on the situation where where you're working, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, if you're all coming together to do a show at a regional theater, uh, the, we kind of all arrive around the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, uh, by that time the design is done. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, if there's, if there's a, uh, some kind of a, uh, again, if there's a technicality about a costume, uh, I want to, get that settled as quickly as possible. Right. Having to do with whatever pockets or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if I, uh, then otherwise I think you have to kind of use your intuition as to, uh, if, if, if you think that you're thinking about the character is going to be different from what they're thinking, um, it's a good idea to attend some rehearsals right uh, pretty early and just see 
how it's going. Because mm-hmm. uh, uh, depending on the, uh, again, on the show, uh, if you're doing modern dress, uh, you can make some changes if you get the information early enough. Mm-hmm. So, because um, uh, there, there's no point in having a conflict uh, about what does the character look like. Yeah. Because <laughs> finally they're the ones who have to go out there and do it. Yeah, sure. So, um, and I don't really care whether, uh, you know, they're wearing their jacket open or closed. Right. Or, <laughs> and, right, right. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, or even what color it is uh, to a point, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, you know, if they have wearing a hat, they can always take it off. Mm-hmm. Um, and But they have to be prepared to do that and know where they're going to put it yeah. when, when they take it off. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and as far as communicating with the rest of the crew, so after you've got the, uh, the plans together, the actual technical drawings, um, how do you communicate paint treatments? How do you communicate hmm. uh, that, that kind of subjective yeah. information? Well, paint treatments, uh, usually that comes, uh, that's on the model. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, unless it's something that needs to be explained further. Right. Uh, and then you do an elevation that's mm-hmm. a bigger scale. Right. Um, and, and, uh, uh, or offer up, uh, um, uh, research material mm-hmm. that if it's wallpaper, for instance, uh, uh, I mean, if it's real wallpaper, then fine, you just go shopping, you know, buy the real wallpaper. Mm-hmm. But, uh, if they're painting it, then you, you show them samples of the kind of thing that you're after. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the same with woodwork and, and all of that. Uh, it's almost, uh, if you do that, you end up with something that looks kind of like an interior decorator's uh, a plot, you know, right. to uh, uh, put together a, a room, mm-hmm. um, which is fine if, if that's what you're doing is making a room. But usually you're, you're, you're not really doing that. Mm-hmm. It's, you're suggesting things yeah and most of it ends up kind of hidden in the corners anyhow so right <laughs> right or the lighting designer turns the lights down and <laughs> that's right see it anyways <laughs> um oh that's terrific now the uh, uh i had another question about specifically that though oh what kind of uh are there any, is there anybody or any kind of style uh art style etc that acts as a primary uh, inspiration for you, or do you really take it show by show and find that period's mm. information to to be instructive? Show by show, um, I I I try to keep it simple, but it's amazing how easy it is to complicate it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, the older I get. Uh, when I go to see shows, more and more shows seem to be over-designed right. <laughs> to me. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know whether that's just uh, my taste has changed or are they really over-designed? Uh, there were quite a lot of pretty heavily designed shows 40 years ago, too. So, mm-hmm. um, And when you say over-designed, what does that mean? Like too many pieces? Too complex? or Yeah, I think too, too complex... Uh, sometimes just too yeah too busy right. too too much stuff uh, uh, so i i quite 
like going to see shows where there's just a couple of actors and a chair, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, what about audience expectations? There was that kind of that classic story of I think it was Michael Levine mm-hmm. who who put the, uh, at the Metropolitan Opera, who designed. It was a, supposed to be a grand opera, and there was a set sponsor, yes. and he put a chair on stage, <laughs> and everyone freaked out yes. that this was this is what we're paying for. You know, what about those kind of expectations? Well, yeah, to? I think uh, somewhere. Uh, I mean, if you if if you have to go around justifying uh, that, maybe there's something there's something wrong somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it it. It still needs to somehow look complete, right. uh, or uh, uh, so that you don't feel uh, cheated. You don't feel like there's something missing uh, from the experience of mm-hmm. uh, attending the show. So, if they're going to react like immediately, the curtain goes up and there's a chair, yeah, and they all boo. Uh, right. Maybe they should wait a bit and see what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <'Cause, laughs> yeah, that's your responsibility as an audience member, I think. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but but if uh, uh, it it's it can look like uh, arrogance of some sort, perhaps. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, uh, if you're uh, not giving them something. Uh, but I, I I don't know. These days, there are so many things. There's there are a lot of things that can be done with lighting that mm-hmm. uh, don't require uh, a, a set designer's input in in the sense of uh, well, I mean, you have to have something to light, of yeah, course, sure. uh, and it, maybe you want something other than just blacks. Uh, and it may, from the audience point of view, it might still look like blacks, but it's probably something else. Right. <laughs> you know? right, right so right. Uh, you, you still need to have a, a set that works for the piece, whatever whatever it is that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that uh, if the audience had waited uh, longer for this chair to uh, get used, uh, they would have found out why it's was there to begin with. Why that choice was looking, there. Yeah. Looking like that. Yeah. yeah. And how about collaboration with other designers? Like what do you require? What is, what is, what do you need to do your job? And what mm. do you feel you give the other designers to enhance their ability? Yeah. Um, well, what I, what I try to do is, is to uh, make it as clear as possible what it is that I'm trying to achieve. Right. Um, and, and that's especially important, of course, for lighting designers, uh, so that, uh, you know, I, we're on the same page, uh, uh, in, in, uh, in, especially if we're looking for a certain kind of effect, mm-hmm. then obviously we all have to work together and the director has to understand it because finally, when you, when you get into the technical rehearsals, uh, that's where the, the director uh, uh, works out the cues right. uh, with the stage manager. And, and uh, so if he doesn't understand or he or she doesn't understand what you're trying to do, it'll probably go in some other direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by then it's probably too late yeah. to, to make any changes. So, uh, yeah, the important thing is to be open and, and uh, keep all the, the, the avenues clear for, uh, for communication, mm-hmm. and and so that you don't end up with a you know the wall color the 
the same as the leading lady. Right, right. <laughs> That's always embarrassing. And how yeah. about, now one, just one final question on kind of the design process. Um, working in opera, you're often, uh, some might say saddled, but often forced to sort of adapt whatever you're doing to whatever's rented. Mm-hmm. the costumes or the set. Right. And how do you, uh, how do you respect that original designer's uh, purpose while mm. doing your own job? Well, uh, if there's a, a, a rented set, uh, sets are what, are, what often come as, as uh, uh, sort of a, a, a design. You, you can always go to the rental place and, get other costumes. Right. Uh, so they don't, costumes don't usually arrive as part of the show, but uh, this set does. And, and, the, and with any luck, uh, the props have been properly put together. Right. Uh, but very often the set dressing does not arrive. Right. Or, or depending on how old the show is, uh, it, it, it may be missing by that time. Or, mm-hmm. Who knows what? So uh, you can you can make uh, you can make changes to that set because uh, it still has to work for your circumstances and for for the size of your stage mm-hmm. and all that. Uh, you may have to leave something out because there's not room for it. Yeah, and and uh, so it's really a question of practicality. Uh, the the original designer uh, almost always gets credit for the set design, ah. but it probably doesn't look the way it did originally. <laughs> right. You know, right? <clears throat> so, um, um, and and I don't think it uh, it's it's it really expected um, on the, on on that kind of level. Like if it's Opera Hamilton renting a set from Louisville. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's that that Louisville set has probably made the rounds of six different companies by then, right? And uh, there's a there's a contract that uh, allows the the original designer to get uh, some kind of a fee mm-hmm. plus plus credit for the for the design, but there isn't anybody who's actually supervising it, mm-hmm. and it's ex- expected that it's going to be adapted to fit wherever they happen to be. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, and uh, costumes, as I say, uh, uh, even if there is a set of costumes, uh, at Malabar's, for instance, they have whole operas that mm-hmm. they they keep together. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they still don't necessarily all work uh, because it depends on the size of the bodies and mm-hmm. uh, various kinds of, considerations come in there that uh, uh, means that you're in fact probably pulling some clothes from some other show mm-hmm. to insert into this set of costumes that yeah. you hope that it's not going to be glaringly obvious that <laughs> they're from another show. <laughs> That's right. You're, or sometimes uh, I've been lucky enough to be able to uh, design half a dozen new costumes for principles or whatever mm. uh and then pull the chorus right and uh that works out really quite well mm-hmm. then um and in the end uh, the singers uh are all grateful as long as they're comfortable right <laughs> you yes. know 
Yes, you don't want to get the soprano in too tight a corset. They're no, no, really... and especially the ha- the shoes have to be <laughs> right. The shoes, <laughs> always forget about those. Yeah, I have no, to walk around for an hour in those things. The, well, yeah, see, that's that's the that's the awful thing about being a costume designer is that half your bad budget goes on their feet and they don't even see them. You know, right. <laughs> I never thought about that before. <laughs> So tell me about teaching. Well, um, I, I never did it very formally. I, I, I taught uh, uh, design, uh, costume design and set design. Uh, there, there's, in Toronto, there's something called the, hmm, if I remember the whole title, uh, the Academy of Merchandising and Design, mm-hmm. International Academy. Oh, right. Uh, and uh, it it mostly has to do with fashion and uh, interior decoration and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They did have um, a costume design course. Mm. Uh, it didn't last very long because they didn't make much money on it. But uh, uh, I taught costume design uh, to uh, a group of people, mostly young women, uh, who had... Uh, there were no... Uh, prerequisites. So some of them had no background whatsoever of any sort. Mm-hmm. And some of them were uh, quite advanced in, in their skills. Mm-hmm. And um, I found it was actually really interesting. Uh, it was interesting for me uh, to actually have to articulate what the process is. And, and, you know, how do you do it? How do you get the information? And what what is required, uh, and um, I ended up finally with a sort of a questionnaire that I gave them, uh, and I and I said if you could answer all of these questions, which weren't that many, like six or eight, uh, you will know everything you need to know about this play. Right. <laughs> but now I can't remember what these questions were, but, but it was about the, the studying the characters mm-hmm. and understanding who they are and what their situation is or their social situation at the time and mm-hmm. all that. Uh, so that then, then they can go ahead with confidence and actually design costumes that make sense mm-hmm. for uh, that, uh, that particular piece. And the, the same kind of thing happened. Uh, I, I taught for a while at uh, Humber mm-hmm. for set design. And those people uh, had no background whatsoever. Uh, they were uh, uh, usually very young, uh, just out of high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of them, I swear, I could barely read. Right. Uh, they certainly couldn't write. Yeah. And they... Uh, uh, they, uh, I had to find ways to uh, get them to understand what it is that they were trying to do because some of them wanted to make doll houses and some of them wanted to make weird sculptures and uh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it uh, it was it was actually a long uphill struggle uh, to get sort of get them to do one play. Right. Uh, but I found that what worked was to get them to choose the play. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was interesting how many of them liked blood relations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know that show? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Lor- Lorca, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and it speaks to oh, all... Lorca, sorry. Blood relations is... Is Sharon Pollock. Right, uh, right, it's, right. It's, it's Lizzie, Lizzie Borden. Right, right, and, right. That's right, yeah. Uh, 
and uh, it, this was a quite a compelling subject for all adolescents, I think. Yes, you know? yes. So they, they really liked that idea. Yeah. And, uh, and so when they had a play that, they, that interested them, which meant that they had something to say, mm-hmm. uh, then they began to be able to envision it. Right. Uh, so uh, it wasn't uh, deciding that you were going to do Cymbeline or something, uh, uh, you know, meant nothing to them. Mm-hmm. But uh, a play with this kind of a situation, uh, they could really relate to. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which of course makes is is good information for anybody in the theater because uh, uh, you want to have plays that the audience will relate to. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, um, um, uh, but I found that teaching uh, was a very uh, great way to learn. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, sure. Finally. All of a sudden you, you have know. to articulate your process to somebody well, exactly. who doesn't know, right? Exactly, yeah. And and trying to make them understand that what they're doing, uh, trying to understand why what they're doing isn't, isn't going to work, that mm-hmm. they're going to end up in a pitfall, mm-hmm. uh, um, is also an interesting uh, kind of a problem. Because mm-hmm. a, a lot of them uh, really don't want to listen to... Uh, uh, why it might not work, right? Because they have this idea, they know they want to pursue it, yeah. Uh, and uh, which is great if there was unlimited time, but there isn't, you know. Yeah. So it's all part of show business, uh, and uh, so they they. Uh, I don't know how many of them might have ended up in the business. I, I doubt that any of them ended up as designers, mm-hmm. but they did uh, kind of be uh, begin to understand. Uh, what is a stage, you know, mm-hmm. and and kind of have a some sense of scale and that kind of thing, so that if they're in, if they're working in the theater, they uh, they have they might be able to make a choice if they're faced with having to choose some furniture for mm-hmm. for a set or yeah. whatever. Uh, it's uh, it's and I think it's important for everybody to uh, whether they're actors or not to actually ha- end up on the stage mm-hmm. uh, so that they really know what it's like. Yes. <laughs> yeah, know? until you've been there, you don't really kind of appreciate the the sense of panic that can overtake you, I think. Well, yeah. Or the sense of owning yes. an audience and things exactly, like that. Exactly, yeah. All that, all that kind of thing is... Uh, the, more, the more experience you have, uh, the better off you are. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, uh, it uh, you know it be it would be good if carpenters had to work in wardrobe, sure, yeah, <laughs> or vice versa. Exactly. <laughs> okay, well, let's uh, just in the last kind of uh, ten minutes, let's talk about the Associated Designers of Canada. This is the theme on the title block. We've talked to several people who've been involved mm-hmm. uh, in the organization since um, you know the seventies or eighties, and there's <clears throat> always this chat about what happened in Francis Defoe's basement ah. and about the start we know in the previous uh, podcast we've talked about um cbc being a locus of the 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 or the impetus i should say for the for the uh, association but why don't you tell me your early involvement and then what happened in uh-huh. that in that basement yeah um well i think uh i learned about it uh because i was uh, assisting people like Les Lawrence and uh, Murray Lawfer mm. um, when they were working at the opera company. Uh, and then I would go off to do some show somewhere. Uh, and um, 
and I would I would talk to them about the uh, problems of uh, trying to get a decent contract and that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. There no seem to be no no standards with regard to anything really right. uh, for what I had to do or what what they had to do and. Um, so they they uh, suggested that I should come with them uh, to Francis's house, uh, where there had been a, a series of meetings um, about uh, starting this this association, um, and uh, the the basement was. Uh, a uh, pretty glamorous basement, actually. It's on on Elm Avenue in in Rosedale in mm-hmm. Toronto. Uh, Francis was married uh, to Mr. Melnick. I can't remember his first Norman, I think his first name. Uh, and uh, he was a lawyer, uh, and she she was a costume designer at CBC. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably you might remember uh, there were a lot of skating specials. And oh, right. She did all of those because she was in fact an Olympic skater. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, uh, the basement was really kind of like a, like a den. Okay. And it had very comfortable furniture and bottles of scotch and cupboards and stuff <laughs> like that. Uh, and, uh, and there were a number of people uh, would meet there and, and uh, talk about how to uh, get this off the ground. Mm-hmm. And this happened quite uh, Quite often, uh, I, I, I don't know how regularly, but uh, uh, over a winter, maybe three or four meetings would take place, uh, and uh, it, uh, I don't know who, unless Lawrence might have been the first president, uh, and uh, he's still in Toronto, I think he'd be worth talking to. mm mm-hmm. um, and uh, so uh, what happened in, in the basement was exactly that. Was, was, uh, it was like a little cell right. uh, uh, <laughs> uh, planning, planning this insurrection, right. which, which it was an insurrection because mm-hmm. they, they uh, uh, the, uh, the, the CPC types, uh, wanted to make sure that their future was not controlled by the, by the management of the corporation, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in terms of uh, their identity, uh, and they they uh, they did not want to get lumped in with uh, uh, all the other union members. Uh, they were still union members at CBC, mm-hmm. but they didn't want to get lumped in with the with the carpenters and the painters and uh, uh, those other trades. Mm-hmm. They uh, they felt closer. Of course, to uh, uh, directors and ads and people like that. Yeah, uh, but they didn't really belong in that area either. So they wanted to have their own uh, uh, situation, uh, their own association, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so they eventually uh, they ended up with uh, as a local uh, of the of the union at CBC. Mm-hmm. So they didn't need ADC at CBC, right. but they did need ADC when they worked in the theater. Right. Uh, so it did. It continued to grow, and and uh, pretty quickly uh, uh, there there was uh, uh, 
quite a strong connection with Quebec mm -hmm. then. And uh, people used to come uh, from Montreal uh, also to have meetings in in Francis's basement. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm sure they had to buy a lot of scotch. Yes, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, that's that's interesting as well. I mean, the the Quebec has a very sort of strong artists union, mm -hmm. uh, which is actually which is a union. There's a close. I think it's a closed shop in Quebec. Is it not at least? Yeah, I think. There is the, yeah, the Union des Artistes is, mm -hmm. uh, is there. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, though, they didn't have. Uh, so uh, uh, it was it was instrumental in helping them get organized. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it was, and for a while, it was a nationwide organization with a bilingual mm -hmm. um, mandate. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me, but... Um, Eventually, uh, that the, the 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 French part of it was really unnecessary because they, there was, in fact, a Quebec association. Right. Um, but I don't know that it's necessarily uh, like Ontario is not officially bilingual, but there is certainly a lot of Ontario French. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's Manitoba French mm -hmm. and and uh, other places and certainly New Brunswick yeah. um, that are not covered by the the uh, the group in uh, in Quebec. Mm -hmm. So it may be worth revisiting at some point. Mm -hmm. Depends on how the theater business expands. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, um, just about I'm going to sort of uh, to compare then and now as well. Um, what has changed in the landscape, I guess, from the early, the late sixties, early seventies to now, uh -huh. as far as the ADC goes and, and what, um, more specifically, uh, do we, has the ADC grown as it should have, uh, and what difficulties has it faced? Well, I think... Uh, it it has it has grown. Um, it it uh, it a membership of or of course any association is only as strong as its active members. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it seems to be in pretty good shape right now mm -hmm. in terms of uh, uh, having a, a very strong executive and and uh, a generally active membership. Mm -hmm. um, it hasn't. I don't know that it's grown in numbers all that much, but that depends on the amount of work right. that's available. Um, there was a lot of work in the in the seventies uh, when uh, so many theaters were getting started, mm -hmm. and there were there were bigger budgets. There were longer seasons, uh, more shows. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so there were a need for more designers. Sure. Um, and then since then, I think things have have uh, fallen off a bit. Some people think that we've lost a lot of ground since then, but I don't know if it's. It isn't really. I I, I think it, in terms of professionalism, I think the association uh, has uh, improved a lot, mm -hmm. uh, and. Uh, there is a, a, a pretty good, uh, clear contract, lots of uh, understanding of what the standards are, mm -hmm. uh, minimum 
fees and uh, all that kind of thing that never used to be in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think designers are 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 more respected as professionals mm-hmm. uh, than uh, uh, they were in the past. Uh, and and rightly so. I think they are, in fact, more respectable mm-hmm. as professionals now. Do you think it was easier uh, or more difficult to make a living uh, when you started, in the, like in the late sixties, early seventies, or than it is now? Or um, I think it might have been easier mm-hmm. uh, because there was more work, right? Uh, and 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 also, I think because. Uh, in those days, and not only in in our business, but really <clears throat> in a lot of places, uh, you could walk in off the street and get a job. Right. Um, remember the a, a book called uh, "Late Nights on Air." I think that that's what it's called. There's a novel. Oh, I don't recall. Uh, Elizabeth Hay, I believe, is the author. And she, uh, this book has to do with working for a radio station, the CBC station in Yellowknife. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the leading character uh, uh, lands in Yellowknife, having run away from some unpleasant situation somewhere else, and uh, needs a job and goes to the CBC and says, I need a job. And they say, okay, well, do you want to do this show? <laughs> And uh, I mean, it was more or less like that. Yeah. And and uh, that was in the seventies. It takes place in the seventies. And in the seventies, you could do that. Yeah. Uh, there, there were there was a need for those people, uh, people who were uh, adventurous. Uh, there was. I think the world was more amateur mm-hmm. then. Uh, now everything has professional kind of. Uh, restrictions actually sure uh and and uh everything is subject to litigation mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing so if they hire you now and you don't have all the qualifications uh and something goes wrong uh whoever did the hiring is going to get blamed right it won't be your fault. It'll be their fault. Right. <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. Is it coming to the point that I have a friend, um, just as we finish up, I have a friend that I met over Christmas who is currently enrolled in a, a graduate program at Yale in the theater mm-hmm. program uh, for technical direction. And her experience down there has been basically it's an engineering degree. You're becoming yeah. a theater engineer. You have to know that that structural, that right. that steel structure has to you know, be built to a certain standard to carry this much weight uh-huh. uh, at, in this, you know, temperature range, things like that. <clears throat> Do you think that kind of skill set is required these days as a designer to have that kind of knowledge <clears throat> uh, for liability anyways? Like, you're not going to design something that's going to be unsafe. For liability, yeah, because I can think <clears throat> of all the platforms and the turntables and all those things that I designed. Uh, and all I knew is that if I stand on a piece of plywood and there's a two by four over here and another two by four over there, I know that it's not going to sag under my weight. Right. So that's, it was basically intuition and guesswork yeah. uh, that I was doing. Yeah. Um, but that's, it's not engineering. Yeah. You know, uh, but it worked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nobody ever got killed. <laughs> yes, that's good. <laughs> no. Absolutely. Uh, and then one final question. Would you, somebody who's 
just leaving high school, looking for a career. Uh, is theater something you could, you would recommend for them or? Uh, I wouldn't recommend it unless they're driven to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, cause, uh, there, there are plenty of, there's, there, there's a lot of competition. Look at all these graduates from all these programs, mm -hmm. even now, uh, most of them are not actually going to have careers in the in the business. They'll they'll maybe start off and they'll get sidetracked somehow. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you you have to want to be a theater artist. Uh, it's different if you're you know if you want to be a sound engineer because mm -hmm. uh, there's there's a great need for really good ones. Mm -hmm. So uh, you should do it. Uh, but uh, if you want to be a, designer, an actor, a director, a writer, somebody who kind of originates the work. Nobody's going to, uh, they're not going to hire you to do it just because you want to. Right. You know, so you're, you're going to have to really want to. Right. <laughs> and, and, you, and you have to have something to say somewhere along the line, you know. Right. Um, especially, of course, if you're, if you're an author, but... Uh, really, everybody uh, who is involved in the art of the theater uh, needs to have a pressing need to do it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I don't see the point because you don't, you don't make much money. Mm -hmm. The most money I ever made in my whole life in one year was 25 years ago. And that was only about like $42,000. Mm -hmm. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So uh, you, you can't expect to make much of a living. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can live modestly, but mm -hmm. uh, you can't. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed that people are able to raise families. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some people do. Yeah. But usually that involves teaching. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Seeing something other happening. Well, that's yeah. great. I, I, uh, thank you so much. Oh, my that was you. Thank you. And that was my interview with Ed Copeman in Hamilton, Ontario. Up next will be a great conversation I had uh, with puppeteer Ronnie Burkett about his extraordinary career, so don't miss that when it's out. The music for this podcast is Podsafe music from the band 1990s called See You at the Lights. You can find them at roughtraderecords.com forward slash the 1990s. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at the title block CA on facebook.com forward slash the title block podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to the title block at gmail.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you try to evade your producer whose bat-wielding thugs are out to get you for outing him for stuffing the Dora ballot box. I'm Michael Cruz, and we'll see you next time on The Title Block. <laughs>